Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red, and today we have a very special guest, someone we've been wanting to have on the show for a while, Dr. Basil Salouh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the Lebanese American University. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I've, I work on uh, Lebanese politics and Middle East uh, comparative and international relations. I publish mainly on sectarianism, power sharing, and uh, Middle East IR. And I'm really delighted to be on this fantastic uh, podcast. And we are super excited to have you here. Th- this is really sort of like a, a very special episode of the podcast because we're going to be talking about the issue in Lebanon. It all comes down to like sectarianism and corruption and everything. And that's what we're going to be diving into uh, later on in the podcast. First, though, we had a few things going on this week, and we really want to just like blast through this so that we can get to like sort of the the roots of the problem. But we have to talk about sure. what everybody was talking yeah. about this week, and that is the lira and the dollar and what is going on with the currency. Right. So there is apparently this dollar shortage in Lebanon, and this has caused a lot of issues. Right. So first off, there's sort of like uh, there's the official exchange rate and then there's the unofficial exchange rate. And that unofficial rate broke 1600 lira to the dollar. It may be higher. There are some reports that that, that put it higher and uh, it, it should be 1500. So th- this is very problematic, of course, and it's caused a lot of other issues. Fundamentally, it's caused by like a lack of dollars in the market. Um, and so basically, banks are refusing to sell dollars, and that moves the exchange market to exchange houses, not banks. And exchange houses don't really have as many dollars just laying around, which means there's a scarcity of dollars, which drives their price up. Basic Econ 101. But this causes a a lot of issues. Along with the shortage of dollars, we have reports of ATMs running out of dollars, you know, people not being able to pull dollars out. Uh, It it appears as though people are hoarding dollars. That seems to be, you know, what's going on here. There there are also these other, like, rumors that are like, oh, Syrians are taking our dollars and stuff, or like, it's all Hezbollah's fault, which is, at least to my eye, it's sort of bullshit. It's I'm not going to go into a whole thing about why why this is wrong, but about the the Syrians taking our, our dollars that that whole conspiracy theory. Dan Azzi wrote an article at Andahar English recently about this uh, and sort of deconstructs why this is probably not the case. As far as it being like Hezbollah's fault, even Marshall Billingsley, who is like the the U.S. sanctions guy, U.S. Treasury Department official, uh, he was in town this week and he, even he said, no, this is not the case. And he's the guy who says Hezbollah is this cancer and everything. If this was possible to pin this on Hezbollah, then he would be pinning it on Hezbollah. He's not. So it really seems as though it's just like people hoarding dollars, cash dollars, uh, taking it out of the banking system and putting it, I don't know, under the mattress or, or wherever. There are also some non-financial aspects of this. We found out this week as well that wheat supplies are running low. It's usually they have about four months uh, supply of wheat. It emerged this week that that's down to maybe two months or so, or maybe even less. And, and that's because wheat is bought with dollars and they don't have the dollars to buy wheat. Also, we see something really weird. If you look at like the import statistics for 2019, you see that the imports are varying a lot more than they usually do. Um, So like February, April and June were much lower than normal, around like two trillion lira, whereas March and May were much higher than normal, like more than three trillion lira. 
and this is just like really strange. Usually month to month, if you look at the statistics, it's all like basically the same. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it varies l- low to mid two point something trillion lira in, in imports. So there's so- definitely something going on with the import market that that makes me think, you know, like, oh, something unusual is going on here. Uh, and, and it almost certainly is tied to the availability of dollars. And then the other really big thing that was that's tied to the dollar this week that happened was a strike by gas station owners or, or an almost strike, like a very quick partial strike. They went on strike uh, the Wednesday before last, right, for one day. And they were supposed to strike on Sunday through Wednesday, but they put it off. This is the gas station owners, right? And then at a meeting Thursday night, they decided we're going to strike. We're, and it's going to be open-ended and starting immediately. They announced this Thursday night immediately. Everybody who owns a car went to the nearest gas station. There were lines. This was like, insane. People panicked. <laughs> Hundreds yeah. of cars in every gas station. It was really insane. Absolutely. People did the exact opposite of what sh- they should have done. They should have walked to work, not go fill their cars with gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very high expectation to have from Lebanese people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, obviously something happened, though, because the next day... They decided, oh, no, we're going to go ahead and open up anyway. So s- something happened. Somebody intervened. And, and and there was a meeting the next day as well between gas station owners and, and I think the fuel importers and Prime Minister Saad Hariri. They reached some sort of agreement for the station owners to pay the importers in Lebanese lira. Because, I mean, the fundamental issue was that they were getting, you know, people pay for gas at the pump in lira, but then the station owners had to pay in dollars, right? So now they're going to pay the importers in lira, but that those lira still need to be exchanged for dollars. And apparently there's some sort of mechanism that will be set up by BDL that uh, that will take care of this and they will allow them to exchange these these lira for dollars at, at the official rate or something close to it. But even then, we don't know what the mechanism is. And even the, the, the people who agreed to this don't really know what the mechanism is. They, they said, we, we haven't really seen it in detail yet. We don't really know what it is. And also Riyad Slimay, who would be responsible for this mechanism? He wasn't at the meeting, so I don't Con- know if this is actually constructive ambiguity. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and and and, and Riyad, so let me speaking of him. He he's supposed to introduce like this plan, this mechanism for importing gas and importing wheat and and these other like basic uh, commodities next week. He uh, he continues to insist there's no problem here, no shortage of dollars, which is I mean false. Like he's just wrong on this uh but he continues to insist no crisis uh everything's fine i mean it really is getting to ridiculous levels uh, I, I think what he's saying point being we're going to see this coming week th- what the actual plan is what his plan is for providing for these like important imports like fuel and uh wheat but at the same time this will be essentially the bdl enshrining a two-tiered exchange rate right so you have some people who will have special access to like the good exchange rate and there will be the have nots who will have to settle for whatever the unofficial market is saying, uh, you, you know, whether that's 1600 or 1700 or, or, or whatever it reaches this coming week. So to me, that this is sort of like, oh, it, th- I, I don't know that this is really a great thing to do because there are a lot of dangers involved. All of a sudden you're favoring certain people over other people and there's a lot of room within that for potential corruption. We'll have to see what the mechanism is and how, how Salame, uh, uh rolls it out this week. Uh, also, Cabinet met 
three times this week to discuss the budget. Um, and they formed a ministerial committee as well to discuss uh, sort of medium term reforms that will e- either be included in the budget or sort of like go alongside the budget. The idea is you can't really confront a crisis that we're facing uh, of this scale with just a single year's budget. You need to plan out a little bit more. So they're trying to do sort of like, let's plan out 2020, 2021, 2022, have, have a more holistic and, and longer term approach to the, the issues that we're facing. Very quickly, I just want to note the president, Michelle Aoun, went to the UN General Assembly this week in New York. The big thing that came out of this is that he he, he basically threatened, oh, we're going to negotiate with the Damascus if the international community doesn't support us more on the Syrian refugee issue, which, which is a sort of like an escalation uh, in, in the rhetoric. Uh, not, not, not entirely surprising, but um, him basically saying, oh, no, we, we, need, we need to see more from the international community. Otherwise, we're going to talk to the guy that you, you don't like, Charles Assad, about this issue. Final thing that I want to talk about really quickly is uh, Parliament met this week. Hassan Azadine is officially seated in Parliament. He took over uh, for the seat vacated by Nawaf Musawi. Uh, they're both Hezbollah Shiites from Sur, so no real difference there. He there was no election. Uh, there he ran unopposed, uh, so he just basically uh, he won by acclamation. He is now seated. Uh, we have once again 128 uh, MPs. The MPs at the session this week uh, haggled over spending for certain projects, which is really kind of strange to me because we just passed a budget in July and we've got another one that's going to be sent to Parliament supposedly next month. But for some weird reason, they were talking about creating other expenditures outside of the budget, uh, which to me just seems very, very strange. Actually, this episode that you're talking about is quite interesting because it's, it's a very good example of how political alliances shift all the time. And so the debate on the financing of a dam in the Nii turned immediately from an infrastructural issue to a confessional issue. There were voices demanding a demarcation between the Qada of Sherry and Qada of the Nii as if we live in two separate countries. The demons of the war immediately come out again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it was striking to see that all of a sudden, oh, there's a project in the Nii and you see the, the Sunnis for this and then other projects in sort of like the Christian heartland of Mount Lebanon that the Christians were for and the Sunnis were against in parliament. It, it's very striking. Mm. At a time of severe economic crisis. Right. But yeah, this discussion kind of is, I think, perfect way to, to go into our main topic for today, which is sectarianism in Lebanon and uh, how complicated this whole system is. And it's good, I think, because people, when they think of sectarianism, if they know a lot about Lebanon or very little, the first thing that they know is that sectarianism is the ultimate mode of politics here. And also culturally and socially, it's a very important, like significant factor. Be it when people are, you know, getting married or when they're deciding where to have garbage landfills. Sectarianism is just this thing that kind of determines everything that's going around in the country. So it's good to kind of deconstruct it a bit to see the different aspects, um, discuss uh, a bit the history, its relation to, to political economy and other aspects that kind of make it clearer how this thing called sectarianism was working in order perhaps to kind of challenge it as well because it seems to be causing a lot of problems of, of, of just complete mismanagement of the state and uh, and economic policies that are all over the place, etc. So... Basil, you've done a lot about, you've written a lot about sectarianism. Your book, actually, The Politics of Sectarianism in Post-War Lebanon, is that the right uh, title? Right. 
it was like one of the formative books for me on this topic. It's extremely interesting to read uh, with the different aspects it covers. Um, tell us how you understand sectarianism. Like, h- how do you define it? Well, very simply, uh, the politicization of religious identities. Uh, Not religious identities per se, but what makes people mobilize primarily along religious sectarian. In Lebanon, sometimes they use the term confessional or sectarian. So what makes people identify primarily with a sectarian or a confessional identity? Mobilize mainly along confessional and sectarian identities, when in fact there are other more reasonable alternatives, such as socioeconomic divisions in the country, gender, regional, uh, national, what have you. And so sectarianism really is an attempt to understand this puzzle. Why in the existence of other kinds of cleavages do people, the majority of people, end up mobilizing primarily along religious lines? And from that, you get to what you're also interested in. If there are a multiplicity of variables, of divisions out there, then how can we step back from sectarianism and how what are the institutional, political, economic, uh, imaginative ways that we can uh, step back from sectarian types of mobilization into alternative types of uh, mobilization? I think this would be a great way of ending the discussion today of, of how we can challenge sectarianism. But let's step back and, and, and maybe think about how it came to be. Mm-hmm. This, like You're talking about it as a, as a mode of politics, as a mode of subjectification, people understanding themselves as sectarian subjects Mm. beyond all as uh, political actors as citizens in this uh, country so where do you see historically the main the milestones or events uh, that led to this heavy institutionalization and the establishment Mm. of sectarianism in a way that people don't even challenge it anymore because whenever you're talking to someone about secularism they tell you no i mean it's been sectarians since the 1860s so how are you going to change it now and it's interesting they go back this far so we might as well do Mm. the same right Right. I mean, you have to go back to the 19th century, uh, Mount Lebanon, and there's a wonderful literature now on, on, on this period. And how sectarian identities and confessional identities were m- one among many different identities that people embraced. There were clan identities, there were family uh, loyalties, regional loyalties, uh, class loyalties, the peasants and the feudal lords. And as a result of overlapping local, regional, political, economic transformations, we have mobilization of people, particularly the peasants, the Maronite peasants, uh, mobilizing behind really socioeconomic demands against Maronite feudal lords. But as we make our way forwards, this dynamic reaches a climax and there is an explosion of rebellion by the peasants. And it's at that moment, really, that to salvage the feudal order, what is in reality a socioeconomic class contest between the Maronite peasants and Maronite feudal lords is turned into a confessional uh, sectarian contest between the the Maronites primarily and the Druze. Now, this does not mean that people were not aware of confessional identities or sectarian identities, but what the historical record is very clear about is that these were very malleable identities. 
Sometimes you identify based on sect, but at other times, members of different confessional groups or sect identified along regional clan networks. But once we get to the, the violence and once we come to the settlement of 1861, what we see there is really uh, the imposition of one vision among many, many different visions of Mount Lebanon on the peoples of Mount Lebanon. And this is really a sectarian uh, confessional uh, vision and order, the, the kind of story Osama Maghrisi tells in his book. What is interesting is that in this long period from 1861, when the Reglement Organique, the new political order, the Motsarrifiya, was created for Mount Lebanon, from then until 1914, the First World War, people had contesting visions of what Mount Lebanon should be. And these were shifting. So some people embraced an Ottomanist vision of Mount Lebanon. Some people embraced confessional vision, Lebanese vision. Some people embraced an interconfessional vision. And we see these conflicts really ongoing until the First World War and until the French to salvage their interest uh, towards the end of the First World War, to salvage their interest in this part of the, the world, decided to embrace one of these visions, which is really the Maronite Church's vision of Lebanon, and to create something called Grand Liban. We're now celebrating its 100th uh, anniversary. So the point to be made is that if you do a kind of a genealogy of where sectarianism came from, you realize that it was never the only identity that the peoples of Mount Lebanon embraced, but that there is a contest over these different visions. And as we come closer to the end of the First World War, and mainly as a result of geopolitical, French geopolitical interest, one vision of Lebanon uh, or of Mount Lebanon is exported into Grand Liban, and then this takes the shape of the uh, National Pact in 1943. Uh, the lesson to be learned then is that sectarian identities are constructed, and if they are constructed, then maybe we can think of ways of deconstructing them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact, Lebanon is committed, at least on paper, right, to abolishing political sectarianism, political confessionalism in the Constitution, in the Ta'af Accords. They said, we're going to get rid of this. Have they done anything since 1989 to actually do that? Well, no, not really. Uh, right. But theoretically, they've said, oh, yeah, we're, this is a bad thing. We're going to we're going to do away with it. Yeah. So, so, so what interests me in this system is, OK, if if sectarian identities are not the only identities out there or confessional identities, and if they, if a sectarian order is a constructed order, really, then what makes sectarian identities so durable, so sticky? And this is really the story behind the book, which I co-authored with some of my mm -hmm. former students, The Politics of Sectarianism. The puzzle, really, I mean, I was bored with reading high politics books on Lebanon or mm. books about the civil war. What, what I was really interested in is what explains the durability of these identities? Why do people embrace them and mobilize around them? And I think if we want to answer this question, we have to bring two things together. What I call uh, the political economy and the ideological hegemony of sectarianism. And this is, you know, I borrowed from Gramsci. I, bo I borrowed from the third phase in Michel Foucault. And it's to investigate 
how once you create, you shape a kind of a sectarian incentive structure for people at the ideological level, at the institutional level, at the political economic level, then it becomes only natural for people to act as, a, as sectarian subjects. And a big part of this, of the way you shape the incentive structure is what we call the political economy of sectarianism. And in many ways, the crisis we are going through today is the, the natural outcome of the post-war political economy of, of sectarianism. Okay, so basically what you're saying here is challenge is something that is very common, which is to understand sectarianism as this, as I said before, like cultural or, or psychological relation for between the political leaders and the people and to understand more the material basis and the material connections. How do you basically, if you want to just give us a basic anatomy of, of the political economy of sectarianism, how do you see it? What are the pillars of it? Well, you see it mainly in the existence of two political economies in the country. One, which is the one you see in the budget and the cost of the public sector and in the structure of enterprises and the private sector. But the other one is the one that is that you do not see in official records. And this you see in uh, uh, untaxed revenues, uh, in uh, corruption, in uh, how much of the economy is outside the tax regime. So in other words, if you want to take a material approach, we have to try and understand why do people still support the sectarian system and from a material perspective. And I think to understand that, you have to look at the clientelistic networks and the clientelistic structure that was created and ballooned in the post-war period. The numbers we have, for example, on the public sector are quite, quite interesting. Anywhere around 350,000 people benefit from the public sector as current employees or retirees. Well, multiply that by the average size of the family and you get a huge number of people dependent on, on the state and, and the clientelistic uh, networks built into uh, the state. And this is why for, I, I always describe the Lebanese state not in this kind of Weberian, rational, bureaucratic Mm. Uh, image. To me, the Lebanese state is an archipelago of clientelistic networks, the main objective of which is to reproduce sectarian subjects. Now, the problem today is that that political economy can no longer sustain itself for a number of reasons. Uh, But before we go into that, to give it more of a concrete sense, we're talking about, I'm going to say what I see, and then you can maybe give us whatever complements the picture in your opinion. What I see, for example, the best manifestation is during the election. Mm. Why do people vote for the parties that they vote for? Usually, there are two like two reasons, two two aspects of this political economy. One of them is them receiving jobs or or services in terms of you know healthcare or whatever. But mostly jobs. Jobs is is very important. That's why the number you mentioned is extremely extremely relevant in this discussion because the only way that you can get a public sector job today is through a wasta, right? I mean, there's no good public job out there for based on meritocracy. It's uh, it's almost dying. Although the civil service council is still there, it's supposed to be this independent meritocracy protector in Lebanon. Mostly, uh, it's not... Uh, bec- they're finding a way around it uh, for a lot of jobs. Uh, they're creating contract employment and teaching in, in the NSSF. 
like the National Social Security Fund and uh, Electricité du Liban, basically all of these institutions that can employ mass amounts, numbers of people, they're finding ways around the Civil Service Council in order to prevent this meritocratic process and basically employ their sectarian clients. The second thing that I think I see very important, so first thing is that people, uh, there are no jobs being created by the economy, so people would be eager to have any job in the state because of the benefits it entails, especially that, I mean, shockingly, sometimes for extremely low salaries, people would be uh, be more much more optimistic than working in the private sector. For because example. of the stability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stability and the, and the long-term benefits that they know they will mm. get no matter what happens. Which, so we being ha- in an which, arm- which now we are discovering that they are rather generous, these retirement benefits and so on. Yes. Yeah, but for, for s- s- some of the public sector employees much more than others, right? right. Like soldiers who go in as soldiers and then don't get really promoted throughout their 18 years of service, they're not getting a lot of money. They're getting barely enough to survive, mm. but the benefits are not there in the private sector, so it makes sense. The other thing, I think, is the funds that are transferred from the from the central government to local areas. So, for example, why a village would need to send a message to a za'im to say, we are with you, is that the next time the the Council for Development and Construction has funds for some infrastructure projects, they want their Zaim to be channeling the funds to their area, to be kind of taking it into consideration, into account in his calculations. So jobs and like funneling of channeling of, of state resources, is there anything else that you think is, is, is important here to, to look at? No, I think, again, to go back to this idea, we need to link two things. We need to link how a certain political economy, a certain institutional structure, reproduces what Gramsci calls an ideological uh, hegemony. So the problem in Lebanon is that a lot of people take sectarianism as given. They don't have the time to spend three years studying how sectarian identity is developed and were institutionalized and so on. Because I always do this exercise in my class and I tell my students, my intro students, you know, uh, where do sectarian identities come from? And to them, they say, well, we, we, we've always had them. We've, mm-hmm. we've always, th- these are part of our life, of our identity. And mm-hmm. then you, when you tell them the story of the Motosarrifiyah and then Grand Liban, and th- then they realize, ah, this is how things were constructed. This is not the natural order of things. But the purpose of the political system in Lebanon and the purpose of the political economy of Lebanon is to ensure that people mobilize primarily along uh, sectarian identities. Now, this has two aspects. One is what you were talking about, which is what I call the material aspect, which is we give you access to resources, you are loyal to us. Uh, sectarian parties. But I think there's another big part of this, which is really the ideological imaginative part of it. You see it in uh, Article 9 of the Constitution, where you are not recognized as a citizen unless you are part of the officially recognized sects in the country. We see it in marriage laws, in, in family laws. We see it in the kind of othering that happens all the time in Lebanese society. We see it in the discourse that we use. So it is not a very straightforward uh, phenomenon. It, it's a very complex ensemble that works at different levels, at the material level, at the institutional level, at the ideological level, at the educational level. The, the result of all this is to produce 
a term we borrow from Foucault, produce these sectarian subjects for whom, to borrow from Gramsci, sectarianism becomes common sense. You see, one of the successes, the greatest achievements of the political system in Lebanon is that it has made sectarianism common sense for most people. And that's why people like you are frustrated because mm. when you want to fight it, when you want to fight this perspective, you really need to invent an alternative history mm -hmm. and to tell them, wait, this is not the only road that we had or that we have, that there, is, there are alternatives. You see it also in the lack of agreement on what Lebanon means to the different sects. Mm -hmm. So they all have a very different imagination of what Lebanon is. And it becomes very difficult to reconcile between these different uh, imaginations. Can, can I ask a question here? What is the role of the actual religious institutions themselves in this, uh, in, in, in both like the sort of like ideological right. sphere, but also the material sphere? The, the Maronite Church uh, being a big one, Dar al-Fatwa, for instance, the, these, these institutions, how do they play into this? Well, their role is to sustain the ideological power of of but they also have pretty enormous resources. Absolutely. The Maronite Church, for instance, owns you know, supposedly lots of land, for instance, it has lots of money. Right. But to me, their role primarily is to make sure that their followers think primarily as members of a sect. And there is a big ideological aspect to this. Uh, and you see it, for example, when there are demands for uh, civil uh, marriage laws. You see how the representatives of these institutions, religious institutions, come out. Suddenly they unite and come out and tell you, well, if you marry in a, a, a civil marriage court, then we, you are not allowed to be buried in our cemeteries or, or so on. One should not underestimate the power of mm. ideology in this thing. It's not just material clientelistic mm. mechanisms. Mm. These undergird a superstructure, which, is a, which in this case is the sectarian structure. And the media, religious institutions, civil society organizations, scouts, schools, their job is to maintain the power of this ideological uh, system. So you gave us a very nice understanding of like of basically sectarianism as, as, as a social order. I um, wouldn't use the term nice. Like <laughs> complex. <laughs> Not cute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> complex and sophisticated. But um, so how does it relate to, in your opinion, how does it relate to the, um, the situation that we're in today in terms of like every report that goes out on Lebanon uh, about the economy or about good governance or whatever it is, is always talking about this political sphere that, that we cannot reform in some way because it's just extremely corrupted. It's the mismanagement of, 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 the, of the country is beyond common sense. So how do you look at this tra historical transition or continuity? Actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think when you privilege the survival of the sectarian system and when you privilege taking the kind of political decisions that will help you as a political elite maintain the sectarian system, then there is an economic and fiscal cost that has to be paid. And I think we have now reached uh, the logical conclusion of the post-war political economy, uh, which was based on a certain domestic and geopolitical setup that has changed completely. 
And now the whole system that is meant to finance a complex network of clientelistic relations that are in the state, but also outside the state, even mm -hmm. in the private sector, you just don't have the ability now to finance this system that has been functioning since the post-war period. Add to it the kind of rentier model that the Lebanese economy developed into in the post-war period. So I think we're living now the very logical conclusion of the post-war political economy. And I am one of those people, unlike Jarit al-Akhbar, who do not blame the political economic elite for this alone. I think a lot of people in Lebanon, and I know this is not popular to say, but there is a kind of an invisible pact between the political economic elite, but also many of their followers and most people that, you know, what we care about is lack of accountability. And so this idea that we get to do whatever we want at the level of the political economy and fiscal policy, and you guys do whatever you want in your own spheres. And you see it in the in-your-face everyday lawlessness and the state not willing to act as a state. So I, I do not exonerate the average Lebanese in analyzing where we have reached because... Yes, not everyone has benefited equally from this political economy, but there is a kind of a re reciprocation of the, the need for the lack of accountability. So some people benefit a lot financially, but a lot of people benefit by the fact that the state does not apply the law on mm. pavements. Mm. So you get to park your car on the pavement and nobody tells you anything. And you know that you are immune because the state just is not interested in this. You and I now can go down to the street and block the street and it will, it will take three, four days for people to realize that this is an illegal act. Mm. And to add to this also, this kind of obsession most Lebanese have with a kind of life of vanity, of uber consumption, mm. which really has been financed by a certain model of a certain economic model dependent on cash inflows. I think all this is ending and we are reaching the logical conclusion of an incentive structure that simply cannot be financed anymore. And now we have to politicians, econo economists, people, we need to have a serious discussion on what kind of a future do we want for this country? On what basis? And you've started hearing it. It's quite interesting. If you, if you read the interviews by some very important people in the economic sector and in the financial sector, there is now talk about the need to negotiate a new pact, Aqad mm Ishtimai, -hmm. and that you know we need to agree on what kind of a future this country will have. This, and it's going to be tough, I think, given what's the, given the economic situation we're in now. So to me, this is actually very, very scary, speaking in terms of like just sectarianism, because the way I see it, and, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, is that whenever there are issues, I, I see sectarianism sort of like as a, a, a negative force, not in the sense that it's bad necessarily, although probably that too, but in the sense that it's something that people retreat to when they're attacked. So you, you mentioned like civil marriage, for instance, uh, a, a few minutes back, that was seen as like an attack on the religion or whatever. And, and, and you saw like the religious leaders coming out to condemn that or whatever. It, it seems to me as though sectarianism isn't one of those things that are like, oh, we're Maronites, so we're going to do this for 
the country or something. No, it's 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 more of a reactive thing that like, oh, no, you're attacking us. How dare you attack us as, you know, Christians or Muslims or what what have you. And that's very, very worrying if the economic model is collapsing for the state. Aren't people just going to like turn even more more so to their sectarian alliances and, and allegiances? Actually, I think sectarianism is epiphenomenal in the sense that it is deployed by the political elite to camouflage what are in reality much more socioeconomic, concretely socioeconomic divisions in the country and crisis. For example, the, the debate on what kind of a country do we want to have or the debate on what kind of an econo economy we want to have. So what ends up happening is people, instead of mobilizing along socioeconomic lines, end up mobilizing along sectarian lines. I think we are now reaching a point where we will test the resilience of the clientelistic system and the sectarian system. Mm. As the economic crisis develops and mm. becomes more acute, what will happen? Will people fall back on more and more sectarian loyalties? Or will they start questioning the utility of a sectarian mode of identification and mobilization and start thinking of themselves as members of wretched classes who have a lot in common beyond sectarian identities. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the last seven, eight, ten years of the state of the Lebanese economy and Lebanese public finances, you see that there are some people that are clearly have been benefiting from this. Actually, even if you look at the data from the end of the civil war to today, you see that there are two or three sectors, basically, that really benefited from this economic model that we have from the neoliberal economic policies after the civil war. And these people are very much in government. They're very, they're very powerful in the, in the private sector. And there's a huge concentration of wealth and income that people are, that are not politicized specifically because the political parties in power, which are whose following is based on sect and sectarian affiliation, do not cannot activate this, uh, like cannot politicize the economy. Because if they do, then they will reveal the horizontal divides within their ranks that are covered by what is called the sect or, or mm. this the, the vertical uh, the divides between uh, Shiites and Sunnis. Et but before you continue, there is a big difference between the pre-civil war political economy and the post-civil war one. So in the pre-civil war, you had roughly an overlap between confessional and class interests. In other words, those who control the economy and the financial sector belong, roughly speaking, to the same confessional yeah. group. This is what in ethnic studies we call ranked system. What the war did, the war was an expression of a change in the sociology and the political economy and the economy of Lebanon. And what the post-war period achieved is that now you have an interconfessional political economic elite. So exactly. no group can say I'm locked out of this financial political economic elite. But what has also happened is that you have also an intersectarian, interconfessional class of very poor people and poor people. And so there is a really a structural transformation in the sociology of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think this economic crisis, I hate to use this term, but it's going to be a test for the resilience of the sectarian system. Will it finally uh, force people to abandon what are constructed identities and embrace their true socioeconomic and political uh, interests? Yes. And it will be a test as well for political 
organizers or whatever independent political groups we have, uh, it's our responsibility now to seize this opportunity to politicize economic matters, to activate these divides that are important between those benefiting and those, you know, being oppressed and exploited by this uh, this economic model and to build a new kind of politics that doesn't exist to break through this hegemony that you're talking about with a new kind of political rhetoric, a new form of political mobilization along new lines. So I guess this kind of historical transition that we're seeing today, if it will be one, I mean, it's, it's either a transition from one economic and, and social, like political economic model to another, or it will be just a collapse of, of one that disintegrates yeah. into something that we don't know. Right? Yes, and you you have to be very careful because if, if experience has taught us anything, particularly the 2015 Iraq and, and after, is that this is a very resilient system because it's such a complex system, because it combines ideological, material, symbolic, imaginative, institutional aspects. And you have to be very careful because one of the problems with civil society in Lebanon is that it is often co-opted, it is divided amongst itself. And so those who are truly independent end up coming up with very radical demands, which achieve nothing. And that is very dangerous. Uh, You have to be very careful about that. The other thing also, as you said, yeah, we are at a crossroads. But this is a very dangerous crossroads because if the worst kind of economic scenarios transpire, then my fear is that the Lebanon we know will not exist anymore. And this is why we have to be very vigilant and careful as to how we respond to what is becoming an avalanche uh, economic crisis. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm worried that really nobody's prepared for this. It, if, if things do go downhill, like really go downhill, and hopefully they won't, but if they do... I'm not prepared. I, I don't think there have been a lot of people who've been sitting around, you know, planning out contingency plans for what happens if if things fail on on such a massive scale. It seems to me as though everyone, the from the intellectual class, the politicians, policymakers, on down, is unprepared. I'm not there yet, by the way. I maybe this will surprise you, but I still believe that we still have time to contain the crisis. And that has a lot to do with the fact that there are policies that can be agreed upon between the government, the uh, private sector, particularly the banking sector and the central bank, that would help us contain the, the most dangerous part of this crisis, which is the interest on foreign-held uh, dollar debt. My greatest worry is that, and again, experience teaches us that Everything in Lebanon is politicized. And the, because the political economic elite think in terms of consequences on their clientelistic base, they are unwilling to take sometimes drastic policies, policies that might uh, hurt in the short run, but they would help in the long term. That is worrying. Uh, and Lebanon does not have today a, a decision takers who can who are insulated from public opinion pressure and who can take the kind of policies that would help us get out from the abyss. And on that very bright note, uh, <laughs> I think we'll have to end the discussion here. This was really insightful. I hope it was for, for our listeners as well. Thank you so much, Basil, for Thank coming you. to the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you and very much. And we'll hopefully have you again uh, sometime. We're not coming back next week. 
we're taking a break next week. We're coming back the week Ooh. after. See you in two weeks. And until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Basil Salouh. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.